This is Fintech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest fintech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, and today I have a very special podcast for you. This is episode three in a new series that we're doing called Exploring Payroll Connectivity. Today's episode, I talk with John Hardesty, GM of Mortgage at Argyle, and Kyle Green, Senior Product Manager at Simple Nexus, an Encino company. We dig into why reducing costs is so important in today's mortgage lending environment, how verifying income and employment early in the mortgage lending process is better for everyone, and why the future of mortgage lending can and should be all about relationships. It was a fascinating episode. I learned a ton digging into mortgage and the various ways that income and employment verification work and how that can be streamlined. I learned a ton and I think you will too. Please enjoy. Okay. Uh, well, welcome back to another episode. Um, today, I am delighted to be joined by John Hardesty of Argyle and Kyle Green of Simple Nexus and Encino Company. Uh, John and Kyle, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Yeah, happy to be here, Alex. Look forward to, to getting into this with you, with you and Kyle. Absolutely, no, it's going to be great. Um, so, before we dive into the the topic itself, would love for both of you to just give um, super quick introduction for yourself and your role. John, um, obviously, we're already familiar with Argyle, having done a few of these episodes now. But uh, can you give an introduction to yourself and your role at the company? Yeah, like I said, uh, long-time listener, first-time caller, Alex. So super, super excited to be here with you. <laughs> yeah, my name is John Hardesty. I head the, the mortgage division here at Argyle. So I really kind of lead our overall, both product strategy as well as our go-to-market efforts for the company. It's been a really exciting year for us in the mortgage space and uh, kind of leading that movement across across the business. So super exciting times. Fantastic. Well, thank you uh, for calling in. This is awesome. And Kyle, um, could you please give us an introduction on yourself, your role, and then a little bit more on uh, Simple Nexus as well, please? Yeah, as you mentioned, my name is Kyle Green. I'm a senior product manager with Simple Nexus. What that uh, really entails is I'm responsible for a particular part of our product line, which involves all of our verification software. So folks like Argyle, as well as doing a lot of work with uh, the GSCs, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, so helping with upfront underwriting and a lot of the ways that we can create some automation for the lender. Simple Nexus, we are a point of sale. That means that we really wrap around the entire mortgage transaction and do a lot of work with both the borrower, the loan officer, as well as a lot of other third parties. So that last part of our name, the Nexus, really defines what we do. We become the the hub and central point for all the different systems that need to happen during a mortgage. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us. I want to start with mortgage as an industry uh, before we get into some of the weeds on verification and payroll connectivity. But um, I mean, obviously the mortgage space, I think, John, as you mentioned, uh, it's been an interesting year um, in the mortgage space. And, you know, really the last five to 10 years have just been a time of kind of great change. I'd love to get your, uh, both of your sort of broad perspective on the mortgage space, some of the trends that you find interesting, and just, you know, when, when you speak to mortgage lenders or companies that are sort of working around the mortgage lending space, what are the top priorities? Um, I'd love to hear from both of you, but John, maybe you can go first. Yeah, absolutely. 
obviously the last, you could say 12 months, but you could say really over the last three years has been uh, quite the climate in the mortgage industry, right? We had, uh, when the pandemic hit, interest rates dropped. That means volumes went skyrocketed. And then as we've gotten closer to the present day, we've we've seen a drastic shift in those interest rates, which volume has then declined. But I think during this 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 kind of crazy time in mortgage, there's been a focus on people, process, and technology, and how the the three of those things work together while keeping the the customer journey at the forefront of, of what's going on during the origination process. And uh, knowing Kyle, I'm sure he's going to speak on the customer journey as that's a staple for Simple Nexus, but I think just the idea that we've seen two drastically different markets and now lenders are saying, you know, people process technology, how can that work together regardless of the environment to support our our, our borrowers and, and, and our lenders themselves? Absolutely. Kyle, how about you? I mean, John, John teed you up there uh, pretty well. You know, I'd actually probably take the biggest trend right now and sum it up in one word, and, and that's survival. I don't think we can underemphasize the rapid shift that has occurred over the last few years. With interest rates having risen, it's really caused the reduction in refis uh, to a tune of 50% plus more in volume. What that really means for our, our lenders is they do have to be hyper-focused on cost and process improvement. How do you do a lot more with a lot less? Because ultimately, consumers, they're still looking for the best possible price, and they're going to go and, and find that. Right now on the internet, you can go out and, and search and find interest rates anywhere. So you're, you're always looking for that best rate, especially when things go up in price as that happens. I'd also add that I think that with the rapid shift in business and now the focus in, in cost reduction, you're starting to see this happen across different levels as well. So for example, FHFA has started to make a large focus on how you can get a more affordable loan for the actual borrower. They are creating programs. Uh, they're pushing out a lot of new technology and ideas to really help bring that overall cost of production in the loan. So how much it costs to make it. And that way, it'll hopefully trickle down into consumers as, as part of their primary mission. And I'd also say that one of the items that we're noticing a big trend in is flattening some of the hills and valleys that lenders experience. Uh, with their sales team, their production staff, and, and everyone who touches those loans, they'll often have really high spikes in seasonality and demand, and then all of a sudden having a lot of lows. But their business costs tend to keep pretty flat month over month. So uh, if you got to still pay those salaries and keep those lights on, how do you do that month to month? You still want to keep volume coming in the door every single month versus, say, having large spikes in different times. So those have been some of the really large trends that uh, I've been seeing with the individual lenders. And I got to say that we have to look at an industry as well with some of the other things that have happened. There's a huge focus on technology, which John was uh, talking about. Uh, last year, the Office of Financial Technology was created for the first time in 2022. Um, that is this acceptance now that technology is a part of this. This is something that needs to be looked at not just from a regulatory concern, but how it can be improved across the entire space. There's some really cool things that are, are happening this summer where we have tech sprints that are being sponsored by the government to say, how can we improve this process? Uh, and how can we bring together folks like Argyle and Simple Nexus and, and build um, really a more efficient technology future? 
uh, and they're looking at it from every single angle. So that's been really awesome. And really the last part of this is personal financial data rights. This is something I know we'll talk probably a little bit more on later, but there's a huge trend now to give back all of the information that, that borrowers, consumers have, right? They, it's their information. It's their bank statements, their bank accounts. It's their income and employment, their W-2s. So how are we getting that all out there? So those are some of the, the interesting trends that uh, I'm seeing and, and observing in the space. That's a really comprehensive overview. I really appreciate that. And it's, I mean, pulling some of the the themes out, and you're right, we'll talk a lot more about these in uh, the rest of this conversation, but some of those themes that really resonate with me, I mean, the the focus on cost is such an interesting one to me because, and I know this is kind of core to, Kyle, what you work on uh, every day at Simple Nexus, but I mean, there's this very interesting dynamic in the mortgage space of being very sort of feast or famine, right? So like when things are good and the market is booming, there's more volume than anyone can handle. There's huge opportunities for growth. There's, a, I think, a generally a focus on like hiring and throwing bodies at the problem and just sort of like, you know, taking advantage of that time. And by contrast, anyone who's worked in the mortgage space for a while knows that there's a different side of that cycle that always eventually comes. We're obviously going through that right now. And it's during those times that there is more focus on operational efficiency and squeezing cost out of the system. And I, I thought your point about the flattening hills and uh, sort of raising up valleys is a really good one, right? I mean, there's seasonality and volatility to mortgage, and that's probably always going to be true to an extent. But having that baseline level of cost and sort of figuring out what is the right baseline level of cost, how can we change that? Uh, obviously, what if impact does technology have on that? That's such a huge part. I wonder maybe, um, Kyle, and I'd love John for you to jump in on this as well. Can you elaborate a little bit more on just like the cost structure of mortgage lending? Because I don't know that folks outside of the mortgage space would necessarily have a great feel for what is it that sets that kind of baseline of cost and how do you adjust that? That's a great question. Uh, and there's a few different elements to it. And I'll, I'll start kind of a macro and maybe we can pick a few that we want to dive into a little deeper. Uh, the very first one that jumps out at me is the actual loan officer compensation. At the end of the day, the, the person who is helping bring that mortgage in the door is getting paid and their pay is always set on a flat rate. Uh, that's part of actual regulatory law that exists that a lot of folks probably aren't aware of, but you can't go and say, hey, we're going to pay this loan officer a little bit more for doing X or Y. So you always have just a, here it is, they've gone and originated a $100,000 loan or a million dollar loan. Their commissionable percentage on that is going to be the exact same. So that makes up uh, the largest portion of the production cost of that mortgage. You got to pay the person who brings it in the door. After that, you start breaking down a lot of different service charges that are assumed during that process. Uh, different folks who come in and, and are brought into that transaction. So that's everything from you know, ordering a credit report, which has gone up extensively in cost uh, over the last year, as well as bringing in things uh, like your flood certificates, your appraisal that needs to be ordered. All of those are costs that are incurred. And a lot of sometimes lenders will ship those back to the borrower, even if they don't necessarily close the loan. But others, they assume that uh, just to reduce friction and be able to, to get the borrower moved more quickly. And then uh, 
you could think a little bit about fixed costs too, which are just more your people and capital, right? You have your processors who have to help move the file along, your underwriters that are getting paid, your closing staff. You have to have a physical building to keep the lights on. So those also all get bundled into it. When, when you think about a lot of your mortgage companies that are doing these loans, this is the only thing they do. It's, you know, you have banks that have lots of different revenue lines, but an independent mortgage bank all they have is mortgage. So that space is, is they got to pay for it, whether it's being utilized or not. And one thing I'll, I'll add to Kyle's point, I guess two additional points there is, you know, within that, those, those expenses that a lender is fronting, one of those is verifications, right? I mean, we hear that all the time, the, the, the rise in the cost of the traditional verification of income and employment. Obviously, that's one of our core competencies is providing a, a tool to the market that, that makes sense economically. But the second piece is the cost per lead acquisition. As rates went up, uh, it got more and more expensive to find qualified home buyers. The cost to go out and buy a lead has gone up substantially. So just identifying that it, it's, we're in a more expensive time in the mortgage industry, but also that has challenged lenders to get more creative with how they're approaching education to their home buyers and their borrowers, such as financial literacy, how can I help you become a credit qualified borrower, things like that. So it's got us to think more creative, you know, be more creative, think outside the box. And again, back to people process technology, finding the technology that's going to help you start to finish and really work in, I like to think of like interoperability, right? How can I get a lead coming in that's going to talk through my point of sale, through my loan origination system to my post-close? That whole process working together is where I think lenders have gone uh, in the last 12, 24 months is finding that perfect formula. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, so let's dive into verification and talk a little bit specifically about that. I mean, maybe Kyle, I'll go to you with this question. Can you just sort of talk us through like the basics of verifying income and employment information? And in particular, you know, you mentioned obviously that uh, Simple Nexus is sort of focused on that that point of sale and sort of being a nexus that pulls all of these different parts of the process together. What is kind of the the benefit or the the purpose of verifying income and employment information at that point of sale for mortgage letters? I'll first go and, and really highlight, it's that borrower experience. When you go and survey borrowers after uh, their loan is closed, generally they bring up the high degree of friction during the transaction is the reason that they found it most uncomfortable. Uh, it wasn't the fact that they were signing paperwork that pretty much puts the largest debt they've ever had in their life in their hands. They, they don't care so much about that because it's over 30 years or just you can't even conceptualize hundreds of thousands of dollars you're borrowing. It was about the friction. It was about from the first moment they started the process to the very end, there was constant and repetitive requests that didn't feel continuous to them. So what really happens with the verification of income employment by taking that upfront, you're really removing a lot of downstream friction. You're removing the necessity that they go and have to be dealing with um, physical documents. They're having to track down HR information for their company. They're having to field phone calls that are, you know, some days, 10 days or less before closing. And in any one of those moments, when you're trying to buy your home and let's say you have an accepted offer, you're under a clock and that starts to tick down and it starts to add stress to the borrower. And then let's remember what this borrower is doing when they're purchasing their home. They're moving, they're packing, you know, they're trying to go and pack up the kid's bedroom and everything else. So there's a very real human tangible connection to simple things like verifying your income and employment for the borrower that can just add 
a tremendous amount of stress to their day-to-day life. So I think you can't underemphasize that. From the lender's perspective, it comes down to speed and cost. Uh, those two things really go hand in hand. The further upstream you get to this, the sooner you know you have someone you should be talking to. It's very expensive for a lender to continue having conversations with someone when they're not qualified. It doesn't make sense for them right now. They're, they're overextended because they don't have enough income or perhaps they don't have enough history of employer for today to be able to be qualified. So they have to be at that job for three more months, six more months. So why not have that discussion earlier instead of getting them all the way to offer stage on a new home or even, you know, a cash out refi where they're trying to plan that, uh, what they're going to do with those fifty, sixty thousand dollars that they're getting. So that speed right there uh, just increases efficiency and helps them reduce cost. Also, what I can say is, you know, you look at folks like, like Argyle, they have very innovative solutions that are more affordable in the space for verifying income and employment. It's one of those things where uh, some of the traditional methods that uh, we can talk about if you'd like now or maybe a little bit later in, in the conversation, um, just have a high degree of human capital that's expended and just are more costly. So bringing it up front is really just all together a better benefit for everyone. Let's talk about those kind of traditional versus new methods. That's something that I do want to get into because I think I joked with uh, Shmulek on the first episode of this series saying that um, anytime anyone says uh, work number on this podcast, uh, folks listening have to take a drink. So there's your first one. Uh, but I, I, I would like to talk a little bit about just what this process has looked like historically. And you know, I think just to put it in context, as you were describing kind of where this fits into the process and what the benefits are, I think it's really important to just emphasize that because a mortgage loan is the largest loan that you know, consumers uh, typically get, something that lasts for 30 years, it's just this sort of massive thing. The requirements and the process around underwriting mortgage loans are just very different for a number of interesting historical reasons that we won't really get into. But a big part of that is affordability, right? And making sure that there is that ability to pay and not only based on like, okay, how much income do you have? What's your monthly payment going to be based on the other parameters of the loan? But as you said, even things like employment stability and how long have you been at this job? Because if you only got started, you know, a week ago and you're still within sort of that uh, trial period, we might want to wait a little bit longer. So there's, there's just a much stronger focus on income and employment within mortgage lending then I think anyone who works in any other lending area inside of financial services would necessarily be used to. It's critically important. And, um, you know, Kyle, maybe you can kind of walk us through sort of historically or traditionally, how did that income and employment verification process work? With a high degree of friction and risk would be the, the way I would start the conversation. When you would have a borrower applying before a lot of different technology methods, and even in this case, a lot of lenders still haven't even adopted these or loan officers have chosen not to adopt, which is another problem altogether about technology adoption in our space. You would have to have that borrower obtaining uh, either their physical pay stub copies and delivering those to someone who can now verify them, scan them, bring them in, or they themselves are having to go find a scanner to, again, send those through email or another method which in both cases just isn't really a, a great experience. I don't know how many folks have a scanner sitting right there in their home where they're ready to, to use that, but 
I know I haven't for many years, and it's one of those things, again, you have to go out and look for. Um, even underwriting requirements had specific provisions calling out against the use of, of cell phone cameras for a long time. So if you took a photo of your pay stub on your dining room table, yeah, and they would see the wood grain in the background or if you have a marble countertop or something, they'd be saying, no, that's not close enough to the original. They, they need the original from, say, a downloaded website, which, uh, again, just gives that bit of friction. Yeah, yeah. So it's never been a fun thing for a, a borrower to have to go and seek those things out. What I always like to do is also think about the back end, because not only you're verifying your income and employment once, you're doing it twice at least during a transaction. So at the very end, you then have a 10-day before close, if not less, requirement. There's some time there where the lender is getting on the phone and calling your employer. At that point in time, there's kind of two big red flags that happen for me. One, I don't necessarily always want my boss or some people don't always want their boss to know that they're moving. Maybe it's something where, hey, this could be leading to they have another job change for their spouse or something that might be taken in somewhere else. They're, oh, you know, spilling your, the company beans there. Don't like to do that. And also, a lot of smaller companies, they don't have great HR departments. They may not have an HR department. So now you have to get your boss on the phone, make sure that they can go and verify name and title and who this person is. And it's just a, a rather large requirement and hassle uh, in, in human capital, again, to make that happen. Just to add a piece to that, Kyle, that's still a practice, whether it's the nine-step log into your payroll provider, upload, download, upload, submit, to even the re-verification. It's still very much a practice in today's mortgage that people are still using that manual process and haven't even thought to adapt to more uh, recent technology. So it always mind-blowing when you talk to mortgage lenders and they're still calling BVOEs 10 days per close. There's other options out there. And I'll add another kind of thought on this too that just came to mind. When you think about a pay stub that gets submitted, we know some of the largest providers are out there. Different people probably remember their names. But even inside those companies, they may have 12, 14, 20 plus different versions of how a pay stub can look. And in order for that loan to be verified inside the lender, there has to be someone who physically has to look at that document find on the document, okay, where is their income that is monthly? Oh, well, this pay stub actually, they get paid four times or they get paid weekly, bi-weekly. So having to figure out just those cycles and then what is considered commissionable income, what is your bonus, it can turn into a really large math problem. And all it takes is one human to make an error somewhere in there for that loan to either make it too far where they're getting approved for something they shouldn't be. And then now you have risk of uh, fungibility at the end, um, or gets denied for an inappropriate reason. So there's a lot of opportunity for still human error and omissions and mistakes in that process by not having it all digitized. Absolutely. Well, and so I guess, John, that um, leads us into sort of what is the emerging alternative here. So can you talk a little bit about the sort of programmatic consumer permission payroll data access and sort of how that's how that's changing in mortgage lending? Like how, how does the new experience work relative to the old one? Yeah, I think Kyle just, just in a way set me up to really talk about uh, the consumer permission model, what we've, what we've brought to market here at Argyle. But really at our, our goal, being a consumer permission VOIE provider, 
is to allow lenders to make faster, quicker, smarter lending decisions while also giving uh, a borrower the experience to, to ship their data where they to be in control of their data, right? That's one of our, our core principles here. Um, but what how it's changed is that it's taken this traditionally nine, 10 step process of a borrower having to share their documents over to a lender and made it as simple as, as two or three steps. You know, you log in, uh, you give permission, and then all of that data is shipped to your lender, but not just in the 160 fields that we that we can grab, but we, we package it into a GSC format to the income calculations that Kyle mentioned earlier. We're built the foundation of that GSE compliant, regulatory compliant nature, and we're packaging it and giving it to in a report to our mortgage clients while also having access to the pay stubs and W-2s. So if you think about all of that manual process is now being done with just a simple user uh, authentication in and, and sharing their data. So what we've seen and, and what we've heard is that you're both creating a better borrower experience because they're not having to go and do that nine-step process. But lenders on the back end are able to both ingest the data, but make those lending decisions from true, and I think about it as pure data, untouched. It's not resold. This is, as of the moment they connect, live data, which selfishly I will say is starting to change the way I think even the industry is thinking about income and employment data and how that can be used in underwriting models. Yeah, overall, that's 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 really what we're, we're focused on and what the consumer permission that really identity has brought to the mortgage landscape. Got it. Got it. And Kyle, maybe you can give the closer to the the mortgage lender, mortgage originator perspective. I mean, I know you work with clients that are are implementing this. What What is their experience implementing this and sort of making that change from the more sort of traditional way of doing this? It really is about shifting acceptance and approval much closer to the initial application. In lending, there is this uh, a concept of an application, and it's, it's an odd thing. You think the word application would mean we know what it means. You've gone and applied for a mortgage. But traditionally, there is a amount of information that has to be provided in order for it to be legally an application. And what would always happen is you'd have to wait for that moment, and then you would go and submit something to the GSEs to be approved or make it through even your own internal decision modeling which can sometimes take a while because with that application, there's a bunch of other stuff that happens that lenders don't always want to have happen right away and even borrowers as well. So being able to take your democratized data and access to this data and have it really at that point of sale, so at the time where the borrower is initiating the transaction, you can go and get initial underwriting decisions happening really right there. Uh, if we think about it more like in terms of a checklist, they can just say, you know, this item is now checked off, this item is checked off, so you don't have to worry about those. And it can give the lender more of a confidence score themselves as saying, well, we've got five out of the seven here. We definitely know this one's going to close. We feel much better about this. So fast track to prioritize it and uh, move it forward. One thing I'll just add to Kyle, to your point too, from a top of the funnel, even a pre-qual situation, the access to consumer permission data, even if it's just certain data points to get a snippet of the borrower before you dive into the full verification, is again, access that the industry has never seen before. To get a few data points to say, this is qualified borrower, you know, I'm going to move them down, I'm going to get them going, get them that pre-approval, all things that are changing with the access to that consumer permission data. 
John, you made an interesting uh, point that made me think of a, of a fun anecdote. When spending a lot of time with working with borrowers, especially at that point of sale, you oftentimes see all the whole entire gamut of how people interpret questions and what it is that's being asked for them. And in the idea of just saying, how much do you make? I have seen all sorts of interesting responses that come out of it. And this is from people who are CEOs, executives, all the way down to and it's just the, the regular old folks like uh, you and I who are working for a company where they're not able to necessarily accurately tell you how much they make. And it's not because they're, they're clouded in mystery. It's just when they get their, their, their pay stub, they know, okay, in my bank account, I receive $2,000 every pay period. But that doesn't always accurately reflect their full income perspective. You know, some of that's getting taken out for what they're trying to save for retirement or these other things. And it can either give sometimes too rosy of a picture or other times too conservative a picture. So taking that responsibility away from the borrower, where instead it's just as right there, is uh, definitely improving the process for the borrower and for the lender so that they can really give them a better idea of what you can go out and buy and shop for and afford. I, I think that taking it back to that human element is always essential in this kind of conversation. One thing it makes me think of a little bit is what was the cost in terms of like friction with the user to basically ask this question and get a good answer, right? And so like if you're the lender, to your guys' point, you want to know this as soon as you can because it gives you confidence to go through the whole process. Uh, it streamlines it. It makes it a little bit easier but the trade-off to asking this question earlier in the old world, I would imagine, is that um, you were imposing a lot of friction on the user while they were still very early in the process. And so there was sort of this balance you'd have to strike between, well, now they're pretty far along and they're fairly committed and we really want to sort of uh, to ask them to take this big step, which is assembling all of these documents to help us verify this information but if you can shrink all of that work down to literally logging into your payroll system, that's a step that can make sense to ask someone to do much earlier, even in the pre-qualification process, as John was saying. So that that makes a lot of sense to me. I think the the flip side to that that I'd be curious, maybe Kyle, for you to weigh in on is, so we're asking this question earlier in the process, ideally, and um, sort of checking off those boxes. However, as you said, mortgage lending is quite a long process sometimes for reasons that we can kind of condense or shrink down, sometimes not so much. I've I've gone through it a few times myself, and there's an element to buying and selling houses that you can't always rush, um, and closing takes a while. What happens when something changes in the sort of financial life of the consumer? Like, how do you make sure that the initial understanding you have of a borrower hasn't changed in the intervening weeks since you got that initial verification? Can you kind of talk to that part of the process? Prior to having uh, really payroll credential data, it was an entirely manual and, and trust-built system. Uh, you can go back to pre-recession and find all sorts of instances where fraud and these type of things occurred. Uh, and when fraud happens, you know that's accepted and eaten by the, the lender themselves. Doesn't make its way into the, the overall financial system. You know, some of these things can get so bad that they would would bankrupt folks. So there's a, a real institutional risk at that point. Um, having access to that data throughout that process allows a more continuous check-in. So perhaps it's, you know, you are out shopping for several months and you just want to see how maybe your financial picture is changing because you 
are on commissionable income and now you're receiving uh, more commissions and that's been verified over time. And when salespeople get hot, they tend to keep that ball rolling. So they just keep on improving their income picture. Or it might be that, hey, someone was impacted from something like COVID. And then now before that loan closed, they can quickly go and run that employment. They're not uh, you know, calling HR again and some of those other things that just may take time and uh, resources away from loans that could be predictable. I think the other thing I've been really curious about, and I imagine mortgage lenders in particular are very focused on this, given the importance of income and employment verification, is just the sort of fractured and more complex picture of the average uh, person's employment and income, right? I mean, we, uh, I think of maybe COVID maybe accelerated this, but we've been on this journey for a while as a society of going from the one job that pays you a salary with benefits that you work at for 40 years and you retire and you get a gold watch, that world now to the world of, well, we all have multiple jobs that we're juggling. I've been through this. I started my newsletter while I had a different full-time job. I think a lot of consumers, based on the surveys I've seen, do more part-time work or maybe they split their work across a number of different gigs. And even just like the nature of employment with types of compensation, variable compensation, incentives, all of that's just more complicated. Plus, people are changing jobs more frequently. How does that sort of changing nature of employment impact mortgage lenders? How are they thinking about that part of it? I would start by saying the rise, I mean, maybe it was COVID that kind of started this trend of the gigs. I mean, gigs been around for a while, but just the Uber, so DoorDad, they popped up out of nowhere. And I would say five, six, seven years ago, a mortgage lender might not be thinking, hey, how could I use someone's gig employment to help with my the mortgage process. However, with everything that happened, you're seeing it more and more. And even in our conversations with lenders, um, the ability for a borrower to have multiple employments is just substantially up more and more in, in, in today's times. And it, it, it creates a challenge because from a process perspective, having the borrower or the member or the consumer go and find every pay stub of every job that they've had over the last two years, or if a lender has to call and try to find or verify that, I mean, that is a time drag. And also you're asking a lot of the borrower. Um, obviously, when we think of of technology and, and again, back the idea of consumer permission data and income and employment, we offer the ability or we have the ability to go and connect to those accounts. So take technology as the means to re-verify that information or to verify that information. And I'll end with this, and and I love, Kyle, your take on what you're hearing on your side from the point of sale, but we are just hearing more and more uh, lenders clamoring for access, as much access as they can to whether it's the gig the gig employers or just uh, greater access to, to getting the employment information because it's coming up, it's come up more and more the last few years. Gig employment is so interesting. Uh, traditionally, you would see lenders just say no. They didn't know how to do this. Their, their underwriters maybe weren't prepared to break down these kind of financial statements where there's all these different income streams available. And it wasn't, again, because they were mean about it. They just didn't have the knowledge. They couldn't take on that risk. And I would say that what's a, a trend now that's happened is you now are also seeing this going up to FHFA. Uh, you know, their mission is to improve housing access. And to do that and to hit that mission, you have to improve mortgage access. Uh, you know, everyone wants the house. They don't want the mortgage. But unfortunately, those two things do go hand in hand unless you know, you're getting winning lottery tickets. 
So FHFA is saying, let's look at the new economy. Let's look at this new world that we're going into. And they're pushing for these type of things. Uh, Usually in the space, it's generally the regulators who are trailing behind innovation. But I I would actually say that we're starting to see now more of, of a conjuncture of this where they're leading together, where you have technology, you have lender, you have regulator, all on the same railroad tracks, all trying to go on the same train, where historically you would find that sometimes they were either separate tracks in opposition or have two trains running right at each other waiting for certain doom. So it's very great to see and something I'm excited for in the overall space. Absolutely. Providing more access to home ownership is such a theme right now uh, in the industry of across technology people. Like everyone's talking about how can we come together, whether it's the credit credit reporting changes or finding ways to like like Kyle mentioned FHFA with uh, gig employment and using that information. I mean, it is it's an exciting time to see alignment across the industry on some of these initiatives. Yeah, I mean, that's so interesting because, I mean, my head is kind of spinning hearing that because I'm used to the the other version of it where it's like one side's trying to go really fast, one try, side's trying to slow them down, and you're sort of trying to navigate that that tension that exists. It's particularly interesting because, to your point, a lot of the regulators that are focused on the mortgage space home ownership and access to home ownership has been a long-term goal for for decades, right? But my sense, and I might be a little bit off on this, is that regulators' interest in technology as a lever for driving access seems to be a relatively sort of new viewpoint or way of thinking about it. And that seems to be driving a lot of a lot of interest. And I mean, Kyle, kind of goes back to something you mentioned earlier, and I'd love for you to expand on it a little bit. But when regulators are setting up these sessions to bring everyone in the industry together and to talk about that, can you sort of characterize the work that's being done there, those conversations? Because I I know that the flip side to all of this is much of mortgage lending has historically been more of a relationship business. It's not always been a very tech forward business in a lot of ways. So like how how is that sort of all kind of resolving itself? The first component is the word I've used a lot today is risk. The regulators recognize the closer to the data they get, the closer to the original true source, it lessens the risk burden. And since Fannie and Freddie are are offering reinsurance on all of these mortgages, if they don't have to repurchase more failed or bad mortgages because of things like either fraud or other stuff that gets through the cracks, then now they have more money to be able to lower premiums and other things that uh, directly impact the cost to the borrower. So they're really looking at this now from a perspective of if we can go and balance all of this together, we can improve affordability. And I think that that's just one really awesome trend where they're, they're helping lead and drive the space. But then you can go to the other side too. The common theme is they love data. Right. Anytime they can get to Kyle's point, risk aver- aversion, uh, access to data, uh, they're all in. So it's been really fun to, I want to say partner with them right? To like understand how to not just how we operate, but also how to ingest it. And what's, what comes out is how does that affect both the lenders and then the borrowers themselves and giving that more access to, to home ownership. And I just think that the regulators and the GSEs um, are onto something when it comes to how to utilize this, this direct source data. So a great exciting topic i think it's fun it's one of those uh, parts where you feel like you're leading for the future versus uh 
sometimes just having to live within the, the box that we, we live in, in in financial technology. The other point that I would expound on is access is something we're always trying to expand. It's in benefit for everybody. It's a benefit for the borrower. It's a benefit for the lender because they have another customer. And it's a benefit for FHFA and Fannie and Freddie because they're hitting their mission of increasing access. It goes back to the, to the question of gig economy and, and maybe those that fall out of some of the more traditional income and employment that lenders are so used to with just their regular old paper W-2s. If they can get access to the direct data, now it's not as complicated as trying to take, okay, well, there's this piece of paper, there's this piece of paper, there's that piece of paper, and how do I piece this all together? Because it's being served up to them. And more importantly, what's been served up to them has already been reviewed by Fannie and Freddie, and they have an understanding of what to do with it. So it's connecting all of these dots to give a sense of security, but also access. And I, I think that we can't ever talk about that enough because at the end, all the things we're doing here today, is about making sure someone's a place to live and a place that they can call their own. So I think it's, it's kind of cool that we get to help people end up getting the American dream on a day-to-day basis. And some of this is driving that forward. That's a great place, actually, to uh, get to the last question I wanted to ask you, sort of channeling this excitement that we all have about this topic and this passion. Um, So, I mean, I know both of you live very much in today and are trying to sort of block and tackle and solve all of these challenges, but I I think we also all get very excited about the future and what this looks like. Uh, A question I've been asking on this podcast uh, across every episode so far has been, if you sort of take off your operational hat and sort of put on your futurist hat and think about, okay, 10, 15 years from now, uh, let's assume that programmatic access to this payroll data becomes sort of a, a standard part of how a lot of this works. What do you think mortgage lending and the sort of that world is going to look like 10, 15 years from now, like when you close your eyes? What, what's the sort of idealized state that you sort of hope that we get to? And, um, you know, John, I'll, I'll let you go first, and then Kyle, you can close us out. Yeah, that's a, speaking to two two folks that work in mortgage technology, that's a that's a loaded question. Thinking about tomorrow, <laughs> uh, I know, but, I know. Uh, but I'll I'll say this: um, a good colleague of mine, David Coleman, who's the president of MISMO now, uh, he came out a couple of years ago. He was a part of Fannie Mae uh, for a long time. He came out with this idea years ago of like the one click mortgage, and the idea that um, the one click mortgage leads to efficiency on behalf of you know lenders, but also Still keeping in mind that it's a relationship business, and you're helping a borrower make the biggest financial one of the biggest financial decisions of their life. And I think the idea that we've seen verification of assets come a long way when it comes to user permissioned credential experiences. Now we we are here with the verification of income employment going that way. I truly believe that's where this industry is heading. Is that from an operation perspective, from an efficiency perspective? All this is leaning into making the mortgage process just more streamlined and quicker in a way. But I want to also highlight that if I'm thinking way down the low, way down the line, the relationship piece of our business is the most important thing too. So finding the right balance between technology and and serving your your borrowers the right way, that's where I hope uh, we'll be in 15 years. And I think direct source data is definitely a, a part of that process. John, you pretty much teed me up perfectly here, where I see it in 10 to 15 years is lenders get to do the part that they are most excited by, and they get to be true advisors 
on the financial transaction instead of focus on being the processor and the, the yes or no decision maker. Do they have a role in that? Of course. Everyone does in the entire process from beginning to end, making sure that everything is collected, packaged together to make sure that the borrowers aren't getting overextended and, and getting themselves in, in hot water uh, or even, again, fraud. So that 10 to 15 years, what I really see is the loan officer and the lender will really be focused primarily on financial literacy and helping get the borrower into the proper product that fits their financial needs because we've reduced the friction so much in the transaction. Instead, they'll just be able to go and serve up the data that's needed. Now it's up to the lender to really look at it from an advisory role and start to place that person uh, where they need to be and help them better decide what options are available for them in, in their day-to-day life. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I mean, taking the pain and the paperwork and the back office drudgery out of mortgage lending and making it truly a advisory relationship-driven business again is a hell of a vision. And I think that's where we should end things. So um, Kyle, John, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk about this with me. This was super educational and um, really appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners will, will too. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate you having us on. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. If you want to hear even more insights into the past, present, and future of fintech, be sure to check out The Fintech Factor, the podcast series where I try to figure out how fintech companies can build sustainable differentiation in this golden age of fintech infrastructure.